Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 43. Our return to Baker Street coincides with that of Sherlock Holmes, who after 10 years down the proverbial plug hole, reappeared in today's story, The Adventure of the Empty House, in September 1903. And here's Paul to remind us of the story. Three years after Sherlock Holmes' fatal encounter with Professor Moriarty at the Reichenbach Falls, Dr John Watson still retains an interest in criminal affairs, and, like most of the London public, is gripped by the Park Lane mystery, the inexplicable locked-room murder of the Honourable Ronald Adair. In a visit to the site of the crime, Watson has a bad-tempered encounter with a decrepit old bookseller, who later calls upon him to apologise. This unpromising meeting proves to be a turning point in Watson's life, and once more, the game is afoot. After two series of short stories, Conan Doyle dispatched Sherlock Holmes to a watery grave in The Adventure of the Final Problem, which we discussed in episode 34. But eight years later, in 1901, he brought Holmes and Watson back for a curtain call in The Hound of the Baskervilles, an adventure specifically set before the detective's death. Now, to say that The Hound of the Baskervilles was a publishing success is an understatement. The Strand is believed to have increased its circulation by 30,000 copies, and Nunes printed 25,000 copies of that beautiful red and gold first edition. And in the USA, it sold 50,000 copies in the first two weeks alone and returned to the press several times. Now, from our perspective, it seems inevitable that Sherlock Holmes would have returned, but that had not always been the case. For years, Smith, McClure and others had unsuccessfully entreated Conan Doyle to bring back Holmes and Watson. But now, with the phenomenal publishing success of The Hound, Conan Doyle was minded to put pen to paper again. He was also, it should be said, a very different man from the rising author who'd killed Holmes almost 10 years earlier, a public figure, the most successful commercial writer of his day, and now a knight of the realm. And as Richard Lancelin Green observed, uh, in 1903, Conan Doyle had the confidence to continue and the desire to do so, and at no other time would the financial rewards have been greater. And those financial rewards this time did not start in the UK, but came from the US. Uh, In spring 1903, Norman Hapgood, the new editor of Collier's, approached Conan Doyle to pen a new series of Sherlock Holmes short stories. On the 4th of March 1903, Conan Doyle wrote to his brother Innes that he had had a great bargaining with those Americans. Collier's had offered him somewhere between four and six thousand dollars for the global rights to the stories, but Conan Doyle had cannily offered them only the US rights, knowing that he could get a second fee from the Strand for UK publication. And in the end, he accepted something in the region of $30,000 for eight stories with an option to write more. Innes was delighted and wrote, Good old Sherlock, I think he has had quite a long enough rest. Still, there was some trepidation about bringing Holmes back from the dead, which in this case came from an unexpected source, Conan Doyle's mother, who had actually stopped uh, her son killing Sherlock Holmes at the end of the adventures. Conan Doyle tried to put her mind at rest at the end of March 1903, two weeks after signing with Colliers and just after he had finished writing The Adventure of the Empty House, when he wrote, I have done no short Sherlock Holmes stories for seven or eight years, and I don't see why I should not have another go at them and earn three times as much money as I can by any other form of work. The Adventure of the Empty House was then first published in Colliers in the USA in September 1903, and very shortly thereafter in The Strand in the UK. And Sherlock Holmes' return would not have come as a surprise to anyone because the newspapers had, as early as April 1903, said that he was going to be back. 
The story was then first collected in The Return of Sherlock Holmes in 1904, and it's said to be the most hotly debated story in the canon, being the subject of more articles in the Baker Street Journal hmm. than any other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really surprising. Um, it's, it's attracted a, a, a great number of articles. So obviously, there's a lot going on in this story, as we'll, we'll go on to discuss. Hmm. But it, it's, it's always been a, a controversial one, this story and the, the, the return as a, as a collection. There's the often quoted story. I think Conan Doyle himself came up with the story about the Cornish fisherman. Yes. Who said that that, that Sherlock was never the same man after he came out of the the Reichenbach Falls. Um, I mean, you could argue one way or the other. You could actually say these stories are better Mm. um, than than some of the earlier ones. But it's always struck me as as odd that those people who are really um, willing to to criticise the return, that you don't hear the same complaints about the Hand of the Baskervilles, which was written not long before these, mm, mm. Um, where people are perfectly willing to accept that this is the same Holmes, this this is pre-Rackenbach Holmes, as, as if Conan Doyle wrote the Hand of the Baskervilles in, in 1890 or 91, mm. um, rather than, than the 1900. Um, so the, 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 there's this, this kind of dichotomy always going on there mm. um, uh, uh, about Holmes and his character. To me, of course, he's going to be a bit different because, he, as again, we're going to discuss, he's had three years you know, jogging around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's going to be a different man, of, of, of course. And actually, I think Conan Doyle expresses that, that rather well. I, I think, you know, there's, there's too much readiness to criticize the return. And again, I think some people are perhaps looking at this in, in the light of, of, of putting the return in with his last bow and the case book. Yes, yes. Rather than the earlier set. And and they, they get themselves into this this mindset that, that the latter stuff just isn't as good. Um so it it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think that's true. And and also I think there was also some contemporary concern about what Sherlock Holmes would be like when he returned as well. In fact, we get a mm. sort of very comic version of that because PG Woodhouse wrote a a, a small pastiche of sorts. Um, <clears throat> in September 1903 called The Prodigal, which came out in The Punch. It actually came out, I think, just after The Empty House had come out in Colliers and just before it came out in The Strand. Uh, and The Punch had been mercilessly mocking Conan Doyle for years. Um, and then they have this uh, quite fun story in which Woodhouse has Watson walking down the Strand and meeting Sherlock Holmes coming the other way. <laughs> um, and uh, Sherlock Holmes is now Sherlock P. Holmes of New York City. <laughs> who has this sort of peculiar Southern American accent that um, Woodhouse tries to represent, saying things like, consequently, and I calculate, and things like this. And it's, uh, but he says he's been in the United States so long, trucking down the tufts that I reckon I've acquired the American accent some. <laughs> but, and it's very affectionate, actually. I mean, as Woodhouse loved Conan Doyle, it's very affectionate. Mm. But it is interesting, because I think it does speak to a kind of undercurrent of concern that mm. here was um, Sherlock Holmes being appropriated by the Americans. Mm. Um, and in fact, right now, there's exactly the same debate going on about Doctor Who, which is now being funded by Disney. Mm. Um, and uh, and it was the same when it came back in the 90s, very briefly. So, mm. you know, there's this worry that um, actually a sort of British cultural property could be appropriated or acquired elsewhere. Mm. Um yeah, it's a, it, 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 there, were, there were multiple levels of which there was some concern about how, what Holmes would be like when he came back. Mm. I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's quite brave in many ways for, for Doyle to do what he did mm. in terms of resurrecting Holmes and then let's move the character on. I mean, he could easily have done the lazy thing and just said, oh, look, here's a box of former cases. Yes. And just simply written them all like the Hand of the Baskervilles and say they'd all happened before the Reichenbach and... Here's, here's the same old, same old, but he's trying to actually move the character on. Yes. Um, and, and say, this this is a different Holmes. It's the same Holmes, but it's a different Holmes because he's had more life experience and different life experience. Yeah. And, and let's, let's, let's see what we can do with the character. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I think that's definitely true. Mm. So let's talk a bit about that mechanism of how he, how he managed to get out of this hole he'd managed to write himself into because um, – Right at the end of writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, Conan Doyle penned an article for The Strand called Mr. Sherlock Holmes to His Readers, which came out March 1927, in which he looked back at this kind of pivotal moment and he said, I did the deed 
but fortunately no coroner had pronounced upon the remains, and so after a long interval it was not difficult for me to respond to the flattering demand and to explain my rash act away. But he still had a kind of rash act to (laughs) to explain away, Um, and I think he does this pretty neatly uh, Mm. on the whole. I mean, he clearly goes back to the final problem and rereads it because you see elements of that story reappear Mm. here. The air guns come back, don't they? Mm. Um, And things like that. But actually this is some pretty nifty footwork. (laughs) You wonder what was actually going on when he wrote the final problem in a way, because I think in in our episode on that, we refer to the the, the air guns being mentioned. Mm. Is this something that's boiling away in his mind at that point? And and the way he actually dispatches Holmes, Mm. it's written so clearly that, that, he can bring him back, you know, as you said, no coroner had pronounced. He, yeah. he did that very deliberately. So, you know, even when he was writing that story, he's preparing yes. in his mind for the possibility of, of, of bringing him back, whether for financial reasons or because he just, you know, he's had a break from him, enjoyed writing them, and it's time to write them again now. So yeah. he, he left himself that opening. And I, I feel quite deliberately yes, um, to, to, to do that. Yeah. And, and there's been quite a lot of, discussion about the mechanics of the the return and in fact the suggestion has been made that E.W. Hornung helped Conan Doyle out. I've I've never been really entirely convinced of this this idea Um, Mm. and in fact it was recently repeated by uh, Christopher Pittard in the the new Oxford editions of of Sherlock Holmes. I think think it was really Richard Lancel and Green was talking about this as well there because there is a a sort of superficial similarity I think to what happens in the raffle stories in that at the end of the first mm. series the amateur cracksman it's the story the gift of the emperor raffles uh, mm. dives off the deck of a boat in the mediterranean <laughs> and is not seen again uh, and then the second series opens with his confederate bunny going for a, a job with a mysterious employer only to discover that that employer is in fact raffles and of course mm. the whole thing here is raffles has decided to play dead so he can commit crimes without detection mm. whereas holmes is obviously staying dead so that he can wrap up the moriarty gang um but that that second story where Raffles returns no sinecure was published in Scribner's in January 1901, so very very soon before, and it's you know inconceivable I think that Conantol would would not have read it. But it doesn't feel to me like it is quite the same thing. In that Conantol very explicitly says Holmes is dead at the end of the final problem, mm. whereas mm. it's all a bit open to interpretation in in the raffle stories. But nevertheless, he may well have got a bit of a, a sense of how to get out of it that way. I mean, the the, the raffles one—it's it's really that's it's that that's a classic cliffhanger. Yeah, more yeah, than it is. more than because as you say with the final problem, the, the, you've got the note and everything. It's 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 all there. Holmes wants to be believed dead. Yeah, that's it's right. Very specific. There are other things that might have influenced him as well. I mean, we know Conan Doyle was a big fan of Dickens, and I do mm. wonder if if the case of John Harmon in Our Mutual Friend is something that he might have had in mind. John Harmon mm. dies, um, apparently dies at sea, only mm. to be discovered as another character in disguise um, through the course of through the course of the story. There's a mm. and there's another interesting plot point in that in that John Harmon's uh, alter ego Rokesmith. He inveigles his way into the employ of the boffins um, by saying that he, he will actually provide his services for free for two years, which has always reminded me of the Red-Headed League and what John Clay <clears> is <throat> up yes. to. So you never know. I mean, maybe that might have been somewhere in the back of his head as well. And you've also got, I mean, with, with, with Dickens on, on this line, um, Mystery of Edwin Drood. Yeah. Where Edwin disappears. We, we obviously, we don't know. Unfortunately, what happens, but but there is the the possibility that that um, when the strange detective Dick Datchery appears, that that might be Edwin Drood in disguise. Yeah, you know, the, and we know that that Doyle was a was a fan of Drood, so yeah. it's another thing that might have been on his mind. Yeah, sadly, when Conan Doyle communicated with Dickens at a séance, Dickens just told him that actually. Yeah, oh, Drood is still alive. Yes. We didn't say anything else about it, really. So. <laughs> um, uh, the other obvious inspiration, and people, people have spoken about this several times, is, is obviously this idea of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, again, uh, I find it quite hard to, to, to go with this one. It's just too, mm-hmm. too obvious an idea. Um, but also because I think it was Samuel Rosenberg uh, in the book Naked is the best disguise. Who made a very elaborate 
an entirely unconvincing <laughs> case for this. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, most of his arguments sort of started with the fact that Sherlock Holmes returns at Easter, and then it kind of descends from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've never been entirely convinced of that one either. No, it's it's it's. I, th- I think Doyle would would find that sort of idea you know, pretentious and distasteful. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but they weren't actually when we get into how Conan Doyle does it. This is a really terrific piece of writing, isn't mm. it? I mean, this is Conan Doyle demonstrating his all his powers again in a way that actually does undermine that argument that I think the return is a lesser collection. Mm. Mm. No, it, it, it's it's. I mean, it's it's great the the, the tension you know, that he describes getting out of the Reichenbach and, and the, um, the, the the ugly moments he has actually climbing. And then uh, <laughs> when you get um, Moran throwing rocks at him. Yes. Um, and all, all, all <laughs> that aspect. Again, we, we're getting into into what would later be, be classed as John Buchan territory. Yeah, that's um, true. And it's really well written. Uh, the only thing that, that is Moran throwing rocks at him. Yes, it's all a bit crude. We noticed when Granada did their adaptation, they actually have him shooting at Holmes, which makes a lot more sense. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I can't really imagine that Moran went up the side of the <laughs> up to the waterfall and decided not to take a rifle with him and instead just <laughs> lobbed some rocks. <laughs> some useful rocks. <laughs> it's yeah. a bit, bit peculiar, but there you go. Mm. Um, I do think that the reveal is very artfully done. Mm. Um, but also, I think before that, you get some lovely glimpses of Conan Doyle's um, writing, particularly, I think, this opening paragraph, which is really interesting in that the word, even the words Sherlock Holmes do not appear in that opening paragraph, mm. even keeping the name of the person that you're most <laughs> excited to hear about until the, the first sentence of the second paragraph. It does string along. Um, the audience uh, quite a lot. Uh, There's this wonderful line towards the end of that first paragraph. Let me say to the public, which has shown some interest in those glimpses, which I have occasionally given them of the thoughts and actions of a very remarkable man, (laughs) that they are not to blame me if I have not shared my knowledge with them, for I should have considered it my first duty to have done so, had I not been barred by a positive prohibition from his own lips, which was only withdrawn upon the third of last month. So (laughs) he's deliberately being kept... You know, he's keeping Sherlock Holmes out of the narrative even then. And then, of course, when we do get him, we get we get Chekhov's bookseller, who turns <laughs> out uh, only to be revealed to be Sherlock Holmes in a, in a few pages' time. It's 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 a wonderfully unlikely way of Holmes reappearing. <laughs> um, and it, it's just, and I, I, I don't know whether this is conscious or me just reading something into it. It's all it struck me as like the Crooked Man. This, this, mm. It's very like Henry Wood physically. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then, as we later find out, you know, obviously this is Holmes in disguise, but he's also come back from India, from the East. Yes. Um, and is is it a deliberate kind of in joke, or or just you know just one of those things? Just just kind of all reusing ideas that are always there. I, mm. Yeah, I mean that, that whole thing about in jokes as well almost transfers itself, I think, to the to this section about the bookseller and what he's carrying. Mm. You know, I've never really been able to go into the into the into the books in more detail but he has this peculiar collection of books which are directly referenced at mm. least one of which we know is mm. um is related to a friend of his it was um it was the great Sherlock in Bliss Austin who spotted that there was a, a book written by Grant Allen uh one of uh, Conan Doyle's contemporaries and and somebody he knew uh, which is uh, on the Atis of Catullus translated into English verse with dissertations on the myth of Atis on the origin of tree worship and on the Galliambic meter, I can't even say it. That's London, eighteen ninety-two. Um, so, and you know, I just wonder if this is, you know, if if the if some of these have got sort of you know little in jokes that Conan Doyle is just dropping into the in into the story for his own amusement and and for his readers. Mm, I mean, it, it's it's you, you you then you can wander into all sorts of territories. <laughs> with with this sort of thing, I mean, um, the the holy war. I, I I'm pretty sure must must be Bunyan's holy mm. war. It's just just 
I, I don't know whether it's it's the kind of thing that you'd expect an old bookseller to be carrying these sort of classics. Um, but the specific, you know, he, he's got Catullus in there. Is this is this a joke on Holmes's part? Um, just <laughs> with, with Watson and his interest in the ladies, and we know Catullus had um, some rather fruity poetry. Yes, um, and, and perhaps it's just 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 you know Holmes pulling Watson's leg. Oh, you'd enjoy this. Yes, that's right. Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Mm. And maybe if the Grant Allen is a, a potential source here, you get a sense Conan Doyle is just cherry-picking bits and pieces of things that he's read quite recently, in fact. Mm. Um, the classic case in point is is Baritsu, this the art of Japanese, <laughs> the Japanese system of wrestling that he talks about, which which actually was Bartitsu because it was named after E.W. Barton Wright. And he had promoted this in a series of articles in Pearson's in March and April 1899. So as Richard Lancel and Green pointed out, that was probably the most recent source. Um, although there is a possible other one, which is George Brown Bergen, who was the features editor, I think, for The Idler, um, right through to the late 1890s. And he'd written a, an article called Japanese Fighting Self-Defense by Slight of Body, which had come out in October 1892 in The Idler. And um, Conan Doyle knew Bergen, um, uh, socially, um, there, there are letters to between them in 1900 and 1902, so quite around this time as well. But I do like the idea that if Conan Doyle had read this little article in the Idler in October 1892, he could well have had this in his mind when he was writing the final problem. Mm. <laughs> so he might have even then had, had it all plotted out. You never know. Bergen actually has is also credited with a fantastic. Uh, saying, um, which is, it is much more comfortable to be mad and know it than to be sane and have one's doubts, which I think, <laughs> frankly, we should all adopt as Sherlockians. <laughs> another another article that Conan Doyle might have sort of borrowed from uh, was called uh, The End of a Great Mountain Climber, which featured in The Strand in January 1903. And it was the account of um, an accident involving an English um, mountaineer called Owen Glyn Jones and three mountain guides, uh, told by a member of the party who had survived. That was a chap called F.W. Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, the whole incident took place around Zermatt, which was where Conan Doyle had um, uh, seen the Findalen Glacier some 10 years earlier when he was thinking about mm -hmm. um, Sherlock Holmes' death. Um, and um, uh, this was pointed out by by both Richard Lancelot Green and by Marcus Geyser, who did a great article on this for the Reichenbacher regulars. I have to say, reading it again, the the thing that does still stick with me um, somewhat is this idea that Sherlock Holmes could have kept dear Watson in the dark for quite so long. <laughs> it does seem to be astonishingly cruel, even, even accounting for the very logical reasons he gives. Um, yeah. But there is a problem in that, you know, he does say, he does say that he's read Watson's account. But that was six months before <laughs> he comes back. He had six months in which he could have told Watson that actually he was still alive, but he didn't bother. So <laughs> I do, it always struck me as being a little bit cruel. This yeah, it, it 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 does does strike one as as, as rather unfair treatment of of, of of a loyal friend and colleague. But um, <laughs> you know, as 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 Holmes points out, Watson he's not always the most discreet. Uh, no. Of characters, and it, you know, not for not for the wrong reasons. Usually, because he's enthusiastic and um, bubbling over with the excitement of a story, or that 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 sort of thing. But but um, but nevertheless, you you you've got to be careful with him. Um, <laughs> and and when you look, as we're we're about to, at, at what happens during the uh, what has been termed the Great Hiatus, mm. um, there might have been absolutely plausible. Um, serious political reasons as well for mm. keeping Watson in the dark. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is where our experience as present-day readers and that of contemporary readers is is almost completely out of sync because the the this story is so resonant with the kind of British imperial concerns of the early twentieth mm. century. Um, any contemporary reading it would have would have would have instantly spotted the sort of scars of the Boer War and mm. and and all of those uh, those tensions because it this is a, a this is a whole Holmes's adventures in the great hiatus are just all aligned to the great game 
Yeah, I mean, uh, along those lines, you, you can't do better than, than actually quote uh, what Holmes tells Watson about what, what, what he's been doing. Mm. Um, so you then got, I traveled for two years in Tibet, therefore, and amused myself by visiting Lhasa and spending some days with the head lama. You may have read of the remarkable explorations of a Norwegian named Sigerson, but I'm sure that it never occurred to you that you were receiving news of your friend. I then passed through Persia, looked in at Mecca, and paid a short but interesting visit to the Khalifa in Khartoum, the results of which I have communicated to the Foreign Office. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it's all there. Um, th- th- this is very much the concerns of, of the imperial government at this time. Mm. Or what's, what's, what's interesting is, is at the time that the story was published, yeah, that's you, right. It's 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 this way. You've you've got to look at this story and think and and take back ten years. Yes, um, to when Holmes is supposed to have, have disappeared. Yeah, I mean a classic case in point in that is Tibet, because mm. if we if we were to take the period of time that is the Great Hiatus, Britain had signed um, the Convention of Calcutta with China, which was purportedly giving the British access to. Um, essentially trying to force Western trade onto onto that part of the world mm. and um, and break break the markets and they discovered that actually China couldn't really uphold its side of the bargain because they didn't really have control over the eastern Himalayas and Tibet and mm. so in the end the British expedition under young husband went in in I think December 1903 so after mm. this story is published but when this was being written, this was a real topic of discussion. Was about what was going to happen in Tibet and Eastern Himalayas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you've got, as you say, in, in December 1903, uh, young husband takes in an armed expedition uh, into Tibet. He'd actually gone into Tibet earlier mm. uh, that that year. So we've got the. This story is published in September 1903. Um, in the spring of 1903, young husband had already gone into Tibet with a smaller exp- expedition um, and been largely unsuccessful yeah, yeah. in negotiations. Um, now, this, this all goes back. It's all part of the so-called great game between yeah. Britain and uh, Russia in Central Asia. Uh, Russia pushing into Central Asia, Britain pushing back because they didn't want the, the Russians to threaten India. Um, so you've, you've got that going on at this point, the Viceroy of India is Lord Curzon, Mm. um, and, and Russia is one of his obsessions and Russian ambitions, uh, in that part of the world. Uh, what's interesting with, with the, the, the great hiatus aspects of this is that Holmes is in this part of the world in the early 1890s. So it's before this is happening. Um, but in the 1890s, there was a great fear of Russian infiltration into Tibet, uh, and one one figure in particular, um, a, ch- a chap called Angvam Dojov, who was a Russian subject but a Tibetan nationalist, mm. who had the ear of the Thirteenth Dalai Lama, and his uh, his actual actions were were very suspect to the British government and and made them very jittery. Mm. So you, you have this idea of Holmes at that time going into into Lhasa. Yeah. Um, and trying to counterbalance the 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 influence of of of, of characters like Dojev. Yes. Yeah. So is he picking up information? It, it's it's very unlike Holmes. You know, he says he's talking to the Dalai Lama. I presume he means the Dalai Lama by the head Lama. Uh, it, it's it's all a bit of license going on here. You've, you've, it's 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 something you've got to remember that this is this is a a, a, a fiction and not get too yes. swept yeah, up yeah. in it. Um, well, but it's interesting, the ideas that Doyle's playing about with here, and that, that you know, the idea of Holmes as information gatherer, and then this this is is then passed on and, and leads to what eventually Young Husband's invasion of Tibet in December 1903, yeah. which, which was a, a violent incursion um, and, and a bit of a bit of a messy operation. And it actually didn't help Britain's international standing because that had already taken a, a pasting with the Boer War. Yeah, yeah. And here's Britain going bullying poor little Tibet. So yeah. that didn't go down well either. No, 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 no. Mm. I, I, I think um, 
if you've got Holmes in there playing a part for the British government um, diplomatically, I'd like to think that maybe on the other side of the fence for the Russians was Moran. Since <laughs> we know that Moran has wrote a book on heavy game of the Western Himalayas, he must have been fairly familiar with the territory as well. So <laughs> they might have been playing a longer chess game for a, yeah, for quite a while before this before this all kicked off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's entirely feasible with the character himself, you know, even though he's been a, a British soldier, um, that there is this, this uh, obviously he's part of the Moriarty gang and Moriarty's main thing is, you know, he's, he's a, a criminal for hire. Yeah, exactly. And so Moran is going to be a gun <laughs> for hire. And he, given his character, he's, he's not going to uh, shy from working for the Russians if they pay him well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So what about the other bits that are in um, Holmes's description of the, the great high haters? We've got, we've got Persia and Mecca and Khartoum. Per- Persia is another interesting one because Persia very much ties into the, the, the whole great game issue again yeah. because um, Britain was worried about Russian influence in, in Tehran as well. Mm. Um, I mean, relations between Britain and Persia at this period were were. were pretty good but Persia there was turmoil um the um the Shah I think it was the it was assassinated in 1896 by fanatics so things mm. were uh, unstable at yeah. that time and we we were very much trying to just counterbalance any possible Russian influence I mean it it, it is um you know the, the, another name for the great game is a tournament of shadows yes and of course what's going on all the time is is that both Britain and Russia were jumping at shadows. Mm. Um, and, and Lord Curzon, uh, to come back to him, Persia was another one of his his obsessions. He he travelled in the late 1880s, early 1890s, he travelled around Central Asia extensively. Mm. Um, and and you know, seen before he became Viceroy. So he was very familiar with the area. Um, and he spent uh, much of uh, 1889 into early 1890 in Persia. Um, and he published a book, Persia and the Persian Question, um, in eighteen ninety-two. Mm. So again, did uh, did Curzon <laughs> meet at any point? Um, <laughs> he'll certainly have met Mycroft and discussed things with Mycroft. Yes. <laughs> um, and is this why 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 Sherlock is sent into Persia um, in in the eighteen nineties? Um, I mean, it, it's important. Its importance. Um, is expressed by 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 Curzon uh, in this way: the preservation, so far as is still possible, of the integrity of Persia must be regarded as a cardinal precept of our imperial creed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Persia is is, is hugely important um, to Curzon and and you know people who thought like Curzon. Yeah. Um and there's another little uh, interesting pointer with Persia which uh, if you look in uh, the the potted biography of Colonel Sebastian Moran um that Holmes reads out to Watson we find out that that um, Colonel Moran's father Augustus Moran had at one time been British minister to Persia. Oh, yeah. So there's a a family connection going in there. Um, (laughs) And if you look into the history of this, um, from Moran's age, his father would have been minister probably in the 1850s. Mm. Um, And in 1856, Britain actually went to war with Persia, a, a brief war. Um, it's it's um, it's the last full war that the East India Company um, oh, really? actually um, engineered for for, for for the British Empire. Um, but the man who was behind that was our actual uh, minister to Persia at the time, who was called Charles Augustus Murray. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. What about Khartoum? Well, Khartoum is, is is another one that's obviously very topical at the time yeah. the, um, the 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 story is 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 published. Um, we had had taken control of the Sudan again at at that point after we did, there'd been a major British failure in the Sudan between eighteen eighty four to eighteen eighty five, which had culminated in the death of General Gordon, Watson's hero. Um, after which we'd essentially retreated from the Sudan hmm. um, to work out what we we're going to do next. Uh, and then in uh, the 1890s, 
British policy begins to push back into the Sudan. Yeah. Uh, in 1896, Lord Kitchener is in charge of the reconquest. Um, and he's doing it slowly, building railways, just just moving um, towards uh, towards the, the dervish capital of Omdurman. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting at this time, 1896, we, a visitor to this part of the world was Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, of course. Um, who had taken his wife to Egypt for, for health yeah. reasons. But Doyle couldn't resist going on and getting getting himself involved in the preparations. <laughs> um, and he, he knew Kitchener and had actually moved into the, the upper Nile himself um, and had got himself accredited as a, as a war correspondent. Um, but he didn't actually get to see much action, but he did get, um, he did get two wonderful stories out of it. The novel, the tragedy of the Carrasco, mm. uh, and a short story called the three correspondents mm. Um, mm. based on some of his, his own experiences. Um, so he'll have been thinking about that when he was writing, yes. uh, writing, writing the, the empty house. Yeah. Um, and, and all this, 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 um, this preparation, um, ended up with the Battle of Omdurman in 1898, uh, in which the the British brought down the the Dervish Empire under the Khalifa. Yeah. Um, again, like with the Dalai Lama, it's it's highly unlikely that that Holmes would have got a personal interview <laughs> with the with the Khalifa, and and it certainly wouldn't have been at Khartoum because he was based at Omdurman. <laughs> Khartoum was 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 a was a ruin at this this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but people know that, and 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 there is. A of course, this kind of the Khalifa Khatoum has such a, a nice, nice ring. Um, so, so yes, Holmes, if he he's in the Sudan in the early eighteen nineties, and and he's obviously um, again checking out the territory. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Mecca reference um, again. You don't know whether that's Sherlock pulling uh, pulling Watson's leg. Um, I mean, it's 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 um it's a little reference on Doyle's part to one of his heroes, Sir Richard Burton, Burton who had actually yeah. uh, visited Mecca in eighteen fifty three in disguise. Yeah, yeah. Well, he would have to be in disguise. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> indeed, hopes would have to be in disguise in Tibet as well. Yes. Um, and there's another sort of small detail that really situates um the writing uh, of this, uh, which is this reference to the air guns and the expanding bullets, mm. which you know is. Uh, you know, was a, was a real preoccupation of Conan Doyle around that time because he had been incensed by the suggestion that the British had used um, dum dums, dum dum bullets, um, um, uh, during uh, the Anglo-Boer War, and had in fact entered into a, a very significant defence of um, British reputation in the war in South Africa, its course and conduct in 1902. You know, just mm -hmm. the a year before. The empty house was written, um, so um, you know that's almost certainly where he, why why the expanding bullets piece was was at front of mind, and it, and it also is is put in there to show what a dastardly rogue Moran is. Yeah, the fact that he'll use dum dum bullets that marks him out as a wrongan. Yeah, um, yeah, quite quite definitely. Um, there's there's also another talking of the Boer War reference, a little sly reference almost um when they talk about the um the people that that, that um, moran's played cards against and won against um and one of these is is somebody called godfrey milner and of course um one of the men responsible for the boer war is uh, alfred milner lord milner as, yeah. as he became um so it's again just another little yeah reference to, to the boer war thrown in there mm. And the, 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 on, on the topic of disguise, you've got this the wonderful reference to Sigerson as well, which of mm. course has led lots of, um, I mean, it's such a, it's an evocative name anyway, Sigerson, mm. and, and, you know, the whole idea that Holmes's father might have been called Sigger or <laughs> an older brother called Sigger. And, um, but I, I, I do like the fact that there is, again, this kind of very obvious contemporary source for where Conan Doyle's getting these ideas from because both June Thompson and Catherine Cook have drawn attention to a Swedish explorer called Sven Hayden, who was active um, when uh, The Empty House was written and, in fact, um, had uh, published a two-volume account, Central Asia and Tibet, in 1903. And Catherine Cook, in looking into into those volumes, has, um, has pointed out that um, Hayden needed an, an entire entourage to have got across... Um, 
Central Asia and Tibet. And so uh, sort of points out that Holmes would have needed quite a lot of money and quite a lot of backing to have done it, which perhaps gives credence to this idea that he was there on unofficial official business, as it were. But it, it, in, as 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 a an addition to that, it's, it's it's interesting studying Lord Curzon when when he was traveling around Central Asia. Um, you know, he he actually went on his own. He'd obviously have people with him, local guides and so on. Hmm. Um, but he he made sure he planned ahead and had um, you know, the, the the latest sort of. Uh, tinned foods and so on supplied he, he particularly recommended cross and blackwell soups <laughs> yeah so so when you you take all this into account um these these places that holmes is exploring uh it it does look like he is working as, as a government agent mm-hmm. um and it, it it's it's may it makes me wonder about the uh, the events of the the, the final problem um, is it all a setup? Yeah. Um, is his destruction of the Moriarty gang, has he been backed by the government? Because Moriarty, as we know, is a criminal for hire and will work for anybody mm-hmm. and would mm-hmm. therefore represent a threat to the state or possible threat to the state. Um, so have Sherlock and Mycroft got their heads together to get rid of Moriarty and then stage Holmes's own death yeah. so that Holmes yeah. can be sent off as an agent into the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, yeah. And it, it, you go back to the final problem, it is interesting that Mycroft uh, is definitely in on the plan because he's the coachman who takes Watson to the, to the station. So he, he's all part of the setup from right from the beginning. Yeah, and he's paying for Baker Street to be looked after as yeah, well. Yeah, he's he's got he's he's looking after Sherlock's bank account. He's he's keeping Baker Street in in good condition. Um, presumably, the, the, there's a, a go between talking to Mrs. Hudson mm. to you know to pay the rent and so on because she knows Mycroft, so presumably he wouldn't do that directly. Mm. Um, uh, Isn't there a fire? She, is, is there a fire in Baker Street? There's, there's, there's a, a fire, fire at Baker Street in, yeah. in Final Problem, but presumably it hasn't gutted the place. Um, and I have often wondered, you know, doesn't Mrs. Hudson find this a bit strange that? The rooms at Baker Street I was going to say. kept as some sort of shrine. Yeah, as it I, were. I, I, very so, strange. Yes, this this brother who never turns up is suddenly mm. keeping mm. this this place as a as a shrine to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I think it's. Mm. I, I strongly suspect that Mrs. Hudson was in on it, <laughs> <laughs> and probably Watson too. In fact, in fact, it might be the case that actually Holmes was never away because Wisteria Lodge is set in eighteen ninety two. That's a careless flip on what. Oh, what a giveaway! <laughs> but but it, it, you, know, you 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 then begin to go down the path of of, of wondering was was the note that came from her styler was was yes. that actually was it Moriarty or was it was it Holmes sent that note to Watson? Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> it's 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 all feasible. It's yeah. all feasible and all, all all part of the fun. It is. It is. Mm. It is. I mean, and the great thing about the Sherlock Holmes stories, as we've said before, is this is this enormous world world building that mm. goes on, and as you know, as we've just talked about with the with the great game, you know, it's the mm. interweaving of real life and um, uh, uh, these great sort of the great mythos and continuity that's created that sits behind it, all of which is mm. you know we can delve into at various times and. Um, mm. I mean, I think this is done particularly well in in the empty house. It obviously been established well before, but I think it really comes to the fore in the empty house because you've got this entire middle third, which is the great hiatus, which mm. is the kind of the ultimate in this kind of mm. um, continuity. Um, but then you get lots of other little bits and pieces. Uh, I mm. I really enjoy the uh, um, the the moment where Holmes takes down his his collection of M's. His <laughs> index for M's. My collection of M's is a fine one. Moriarty himself is enough to make any letter illustrious. And here is Morgan the Poisoner and Meridew of Abominable Memory and Matthews who knocked out my left canine in the waiting room at Charing Cross. <laughs> Just wonderful things. But, you know, you get the, arguably through that because of this kind of approach. Empty House is, is one of those stories that really builds up the mythology of Moriarty. Mm in a way that actually we we don't really get that much in in the final problem i think when we discussed this in episode 34 we were saying that you don't mm. really get to see 
Moriarty in action all that much. Mm. He's, Holmes is always telling you about how important mm. and significant it is, but you don't see him in action. Whereas in, in The Empty House, you get a bit more of the meat on this. You get the sense of this big organization and the fact that mm. it's been, um, you know, it's been whittled down. One of my favorite lines in all of this is about, is about Parker, the grotter, um, <laughs> where, who Holmes describes as harmless. <laughs> which, which is, which means he's probably so not, not a very not a very good character. <laughs> Did he forget to bring his rope or something? I mean, it's just oh mm. dear, I love it. But yeah, but the, the, you know, all of this stuff, Empty House is so rich in all of this mm. mythos, um, mm. and um, you know, that's that's part of the thing that makes it so enjoyable. Mm. I think. Well, you also get it's, it, it's interesting going to this sort of area with 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 this world building and 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 fiction meeting reality. Mm. Um, to come back to the the idea of of, of of the great game and and this 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 popular awareness of of the great game and 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 the 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 imperial maneuverings um but you, you've got a, a similar time to the empty house you two two great novels um set around the great game um john buchan's the half-hearted mm. uh published in 1900 and of course kim yeah, by yeah. Rudyard Kipling, which is the great game novel, uh, published yeah. in 1901. So th- this is very much in the yes. in, the, in the, the the cultural atmosphere of the time, um, and, and and it's interesting talking about Buchan within this context, uh, where you talk about world building and 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 Buchan, I don't know whether he takes lessons from Doyle on this, but he does the same thing with his. You, you've got you've got the Hanny novels. And the yeah. Lethen novels, and the Lethen, yeah, and they cross over the characters between yeah, the two sets cross over. So he has this this world building, and and also one of the main things you'll get in in Buchan's thrillers is this this kind of the the, the, the politics of paranoia. Yes, um, yeah. that are there in the powerhouse and the Thirty Nine Steps, and that's very much Holmes and the Moriarty gang. This this kind of air of paranoia is is there. Yes, all the time as well, and and you got this with 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 Holmes in the final problem with the the air guns and I'm being hunted and 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 Buchan goes very much on on these lines as well. So the yeah. both the final problem and the empty house are very are very much kind of precursors of the way thriller stories are going well, to going to go. It's interesting you should say that because I'm just as you're talking, I'm just wondering about Green Mantle and the Great Hiatus. And you know the sort of mechanics of the plot of Green Mantle and what is what mm. is happening um, with a Westerner undercover, as it were. Mm, mm. Um, you know, um, do we know if Buchan read any Conan Doyle or had any interest? We, I don't know of any any definite proof. I've, I've, in my own mind, I have no doubt. Yeah, that, that he'll, he'll have he'll have read Doyle and he'll have learned lessons from from Doyle's writings. Um, and and to me, this this is the the next stage on. Yes, it's the evolution. Um, is yeah. is the evolution in from the detective story into the thriller? Into story. the thriller, yeah, definitely. And this this will then go on to Ian Fleming later on. Yeah, with with, with the Bond novels and, and and of course later on with with the Bond series, Fleming kills Bond off at least twice. Yes, in From Russia with Love and, and You Only Live Twice. Um, so it, it's, uh, I, I do see the final problem in the empty house as, as hugely important stories, yeah. Um, yeah. in, in setting up this, this type of, of, of fiction, yeah, yeah, um, and, and putting down early, early places and markers of, of, of how to, how to do this. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and the odd thing about this story is that the kind of, the, the mystery that's at the the heart of it, the, or at least the the mystery that we open with the Park Lane mystery, is the lesser of the three components of this of this story to some extent. Yeah, it's 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 odd in a way because it it's both pointing backwards and pointing forwards the whole Park Lane mystery because you you've got it is a classic locked room. Yeah, so you're going back to the murders in the Rue Morgue. But you're also looking forward to kind of John Dixon Carr and that yes, school yeah. of, of of golden age detective fiction. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd solution to a locked room mystery that the window is open. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's yeah. no way it's still a locked room mystery in that you know there's no way that yeah, anyone it could is. have you know there's 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 no marks. So, so it is a it is a locked room mystery. Yeah, it is. Um, in that you know that nobody's been in there. It fits the bill. 
yes, Doyle doing his his version of it. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And the, so when when we get into this final third of the story, um, you know, we were saying before about how Conan Doyle was picking up influences and and um, contributions from various different uh, sources to support <laughs> this and and. In this le- in the letter that I refer to right at the top, where he r- writes to his mother in March 1903, he added this little detail. I have finished the first one. The plot, by the way, was given me by Jean, and it's mm. a rare good one. You will find that Holmes was never dead, and he is now very much alive. Now, that Jean is Jean Leckie, who'd become his second wife. Uh, and I've always assumed that the detail that she gives is the Ronald Adair plot, mm. is the is the card scandal plot. But I don't think there's any particular evidence one way or the other as to what she contributed. No, I, th- I think all we know is is what you've you've said that you know there's there's no further detail. Um, mm. But you would think that would be the part rather than the great hiatus aspect. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Of it. Um, which, which you know, with with all its the the, the political and world building elements, <coughs> it really has the marks of, of of Doyle about it. Absolutely does. And the Ronald Dare <clears throat> plot, I think, has got a more direct and obvious um, predecessor in <clears throat> in the um, the Royal Baccarat scandal from <clears throat> eighteen ninety, um, also known as the Tramby Croft affair. <clears throat> um, and uh, this was the scandal that arose when the Prince of Wales of future, Edward VII, was staying with the Wilson family in Tranby Croft, which is just outside Hull. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the guests there, Sir William Gordon Cumming, a lieutenant colonel in the Scots Guards, was accused mm-hmm. of cheating. And uh, essentially what happened was, with the prince's support, the guests forced Gordon Cumming to write a confession mm-hmm. um, that basically said he would he would not play cards again and they would undertake not to spread this rumor, except, of course, what happened was it got out. <laughs> um, and Gordon Cumming, rather than sort of taking this lying down, decided to sue the Wilson family, and it became a, um, a celebrated court case. Mm. Um, and uh, in the end, he lost, uh, and he was thrown out of the British Army the following day <laughs> and ostracized. But but this is clearly something that Conan Doyle um, picks up on. I mean, when he wrote The Five Orange Pips, uh, which was only a year after this scandal. Um, uh, he mentioned about uh, Major Prendergast and the mm-hmm. scandal of the Tankerville Club. Mm. And the Tankerville Club gets mentioned again in this story mm. because it's part of Moran's biography. <laughs> Another story he wrote around the same time as the Five Orange Pips was A Regimental Scandal, which came mm. out in May 1892. And that obviously plays on the Tramby Croft affair, but it has a uh, it has an interesting twist, which I'm not going to spoil <laughs> on, on the podcast for those who've not read it. Um, but you also got a card scandal in The Hound of the Baskervilles with Colonel Upward of the Non-Parade Club. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the, it, I think this is, uh, there's a fairly obvious precursor for, uh, uh, for, for the Ronald Adair plot. You can see mm. where he's sort of pulling on those threads for that one. And he's also at this time still <clears throat> writing Napoleonic stories and, and the Regency period is, is, is in his head mm. as well. Um, and obviously there's, there's, there's a lot of this, comes into Rodney Stone in 1896. Yes. Um, you've, you've, you've got cards always come into that, that sort of period. And, and, and Doyle retained a fascination with this to the end because one of his, his last stories was the, uh, the end of Devil Hawker, yeah. which is a kind of Regency version of, of Moran. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's now come on to talk about uh, Colonel Sebastian Moran, who we've skirted around so far in the podcast, but um, he's a terrific figure. And, um, you know, there's great evidence of world building uh, in, in Conan Doyle's description of, of, um, of Moran and Moran's background. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we get a, a, pretty good description of the background when uh, Holmes um, hands Watson the, uh, the, the potted biography, mm. uh, which, which reads, Moran, Sebastian, Colonel, unemployed, formerly first Bangalore pioneers, born London 1840, son of Sir Augustus Moran, CB, once British minister in Persia, educated Eton and Oxford, served in Jawaki campaign, Afghan campaign, Charatiab dispatches, Sherpur and Cobble, author of Heavy Game of the Western Himalayas, 1881, Three Months in the Jungle, 1884, address Conduit Street, 
clubs, the Anglo-Indian, the Tankerville, the Bagatelle Card Club. So you've got a, a really good um, potted biography there. Just gives you a sense of the man. Yeah. Um, um, interesting. Um, the, the, the regiment is is a fictitious one. The, the uh, <laughs> Bangalore pioneers. Um, interesting that he's in a, a, a pioneer regiment, so more mm. associated with 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 being a sapper. Yeah. Um, whereas these these sort of cads are usually um, cavalry officers or that sort of <laughs> or, or disgruntled infantry officers. Um, but obviously the, the Indian background's all there. Um, and, um, I've always found it fascinating myself with you read the campaigns there that he, he obviously served in the second Afghan war. So yeah. he'll have, he'll, he might've been rubbing shoulders with Watson. Yeah, absolutely. At, at, at some point during that campaign. Um, and, uh, of course, he, uh, um, a nice touch is, is, is the books he's written. It yes. would have been even nicer if they'd put two volumes. But, <laughs> <laughs> it is a great. usual for that period. It is. It is wonderful. Um, but he, he's, you know, he's, he's given a good, good, you know, fleshed yeah. out background there. And it, it is this background that fits in with Watson's astonishment of the, this is the background of an honorable soldier. Indeed. What's happened here? Yeah. How could, how could this man be Moriarty's chief lieutenant? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, although he does say he was educated at Eton and Oxford, <laughs> <laughs> um, he also wears an opera hat, which I think is the sure sign of a bounder, isn't it? Really. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, the description of Moran is fantastic as well. When you actually get to meet him mm. in person, you know, the, the description it was a tremendously virile and yet sinister face which was turned towards us with the brow of a philosopher above and the jaw of a sensualist below. The man must have started with great capacities for good or for evil, but one could not look upon his cruel blue eyes with their drooping cynical lids or upon the fierce aggressive nose and the threatening deep lined brow without reading nature's plainest danger signals. That's a great, great description. I do think, I do think also, again, that's another Conan Doyle, you know, not liking sensualists. That's a that's, that's a no no. Douglas Stone in Lady Sannox is a is, is another sensualist. But you get that reference in there as well. To um, uh, must have started with great capacities for good or good and evil, good mm. or for evil, um, which ties into something that Sherlock Holmes then goes on to talk about later, which is um, the the there are some trees, Watson. That speech mm. about uh, which is about our old the mm. old friend uh, atavism, which um, Conan Doyle mm. comes back to time and time again, this idea that, uh, well, as Holmes says, the person becomes, as it were, the epitome of the history of his own family. Mm. It is surely rather fanciful. Well, I don't <laughs> insist upon it. Says, you, know. <laughs> well, just, you know, throw that one in there. Mm. So you get this idea that Moran is this, uh, uh, is the summation of his family line. And, um, and it does make you think about what, what he was like as a, as a young man, maybe if he was a sort of sapper or how he, you know, what he got involved in, but actually someone else has done that for us. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have um, George MacDonald Fraser in uh, Flashman and the Tiger, which published in 1997, which is a, a, a joyful homage to yeah. this story um, where we, we get some, some of the background to um, – to, to, to Moran really fleshed out uh, where, where <clears throat> Flashman encounters him first uh, following the Battle of Isantuana in the, in the Zulu War and then both Flashman and Moran end up involved in the defense of Rock's Drift. Um, <laughs> but um, I, what is interesting here is, is that um, Moran's involvement in the Zulu War isn't mentioned in Holmes's... Uh, no. Biography. So Holmes uh, is obviously a bit careless in his uh, in his information <laughs> gathering. Um, but uh, yes, if uh, Flashman's first encounter with 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 Moran, he he encounters him some fifteen years later in a very different uh, different yeah. guise of um, the, the he, Flashman works him out as the card sharp, and there's, there's yes. all sorts of other shenanigans involving Flashman's granddaughter. Um, <laughs> but all of this, all of this leads to um, Flashman also being there in Camden House yeah. on the night of the attempted murder of Sherlock Holmes. It's it's, it's just it's very cleverly put together. Very, it's it's a, a wonderful piece of storytelling. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I won't go into too much detail because I would recommend. 
people yes. uh, go well, out and, and 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 read the story themselves. Yeah, and it, it, there is the the card shop bit is again borrowed on the Tranby Croft mm, affair as mm, well. Mm. Um, and in fact, it is the Tranby Croft affair, isn't it? I think. Mm, the yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it's worth saying that the um the the capture of Moran is a lot more entertaining in Flashman and the Tiger yes. <laughs> than it is in in the Empty House. <laughs> and the, the the other aspect that Fraser does does capture of, of of this story is is something I've I've always felt is is the, the kind of the the sense of the 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 oddity of of the building itself uh, this 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 odd creepy empty building mm. on, on Baker Street mm. um, and it, it, it's 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 often struck me I think I've said this before uh, the speckled band parts of that has always struck me as 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 being like a haunted house story. Yeah. Um, yeah. in the way it's set up. And I, I feel that with, 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 um, with this story as well, that there's, there's, there's very much the, the air, certainly within the house scenes of, 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 you know, the, the, the haunted house, the classic Victorian haunted house or, or ghost story, mm. um, which Richard Doyle was always interested in. I mean, he'd actually taken part in at least one real life ghost hunt um, mm, mm. with his involvement with the society for uh, psychical research mm. um and of course his, his the earliest surviving story uh, of doyle's is is a story from the mid 1870s called the haunted grange of gorsthorpe um which is very much a piece of prentice work mm. um very overwritten and and um, you you can see the direction he's going, but he's obviously got this 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 great interest in in the ghost story, um, and and one of the, the the most famous ghost stories of the Victorian period is the Haunters and the Haunted, which was was published hmm. in eighteen fifty nine by uh, Edward Bulwer Lytton, which which Doyle in Through the Magic Door described as the very best ghost story that I know. Um, so he's, he's a huge fan of it, and and that involves. A deserted mansion hmm. um, somewhere to the north of Oxford Street, yeah. uh, which is a, a similar setting yeah. to, um, to, to 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 Camden House on Baker Street. But if you, you look at the um, the language that that uh, that he uses in in the empty house, I mean, say Bulwerlitton's story is called "The Haunters and the Haunted," hmm. um, and and you've got this within the empty house. My friend's plans were gradually revealing themselves. From this convenient retreat, the watchers were being watched and the trackers tracked. <laughs> so the, haunter, the, the haunters and the haunted, the, hunt, the hunters and the hunted, essentially, is, is, is what we, we're going on to the, into this story. And then the, the description of when, when Holmes and Watson enter Camden House. The place was pitch dark, but it was evident to me that it was an empty house. Our feet creaked and crackled over the bare planking, and my outstretched hand touched a wall from which the paper was hanging in ribbons. Hmm. Holmes's cold, thin fingers closed round my wrists and led me forward down a long hall until I dimly saw the murky fanlight over the door. Here Holmes turned suddenly to the right, and we found ourselves in a large square empty room, heavily shadowed in the corners but faintly lit in the centre from the lights of the street beyond. There was no lamp near, and the window was thick with dust, so that we could only just discern each other's figures within. I mean, that's that's the language of a ghost story. Mm. That, that is mm. a haunted house. It's setting up that that creepy atmosphere, yeah, which will then crash into the atmosphere of an adventure story when when Moran enters. Um, and it's, it's it's you know it's it's a, a, a fascinating juxtaposition. I think you and. And that sort of takes us to the to the title of this story, mm, really, in mm. many ways. In that, uh, it, it does sound like the title of a ghost story more than it sounds like the story mm. of an adventure story. Um, mm. I mean, it's always struck me as being quite a quite a boring title, almost a deliberately mm. boring title to sort of enti- to 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 announce the return of Sherlock Holmes. But um, but I think it's also a very clever one in mm. that you know, as as you've just read in that passage, Camden House is is the empty house that Watson refers to, but equally Baker Street could be the, the empty house. You know, mm, yeah. we've had an absence of Sherlock Holmes for all this period of time. Presumably during those three years absence, Watson will have taken a nostalgic wander yeah. down Baker Street and, and looked at the old windows and, and you know, mused upon the emptiness 
That's it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the the thing that has perplexed me somewhat is that you know we find out later that Colonel Moran somehow escaped the death penalty <laughs> because in Illustrious Client we hear that uh, he is the living Colonel Sebastian Moran, mm. and that's set what nineteen oh two something like that. Mm. So mm. Um, mm. so so what on el- what on earth happened? You have to think. Well, was 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 he deemed insane, or or, or you know, was it the fact that this would raise too much in the press? Maybe about his background and too many stories, and and you know, the, the, there are numerous reasons you could see. Yeah, as to uh, as as to why not, but but I seem to recall. I can I, I think Flashman actually talks about him being hanged. So oh right, okay. who knows. Well, you see, in, in this, it looks like he might have got away with it. In which yes. Case, maybe he just knew too much, or maybe he was secretly working for Mycroft as well. Mm, case, you know. Maybe maybe he disappeared into Central Asia. Yeah. Let's leave him there. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the podcast. And um, if you would like to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, then please uh, look at our website to find out details of how you can become a sponsor or leave us a rating or review on your podcaster of choice. So, Paul, what's the topic of the podcast next time? Uh, Next time, we're going to be um, conducting another interview show um, with Andrew Lysett, uh, author of the 2007 biography, uh, Conan Doyle. But he's also brought out a, a, a new book on Holmes called The Worlds of Sherlock Holmes. Brilliant. So we look forward to speaking to Andrew and that podcast will be out in the middle of next month, um, slightly ahead of our normal monthly schedule. Um, And we'll be back with a regular show at the end of November. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. (laughs) Cockaleeky. It's just the way I'm standing. What you are about to see will change the way you feel about soup. Because inside every carton of new four-season soup is the fresh taste of nature. Simply snip and pour to enjoy the richness of five garden vegetables in a meaty beef stock. Or this smoky blend of lentils and bacon. You'll never feel the same about soup again once you've tried the fresh taste of nature captured in every carton of four-season soup from Cross and Blackwell.